Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Stephen Cope, the author of many books from The Great Work of Your Life, Deep Human Connection, and most recently, Dharma in Difficult Times. Stephen is a psychotherapist, scholar in residence at the renowned Kripalu Center, and the founder and former director of Kripalu's Institute for Extraordinary Living. Stephen is a return guest to the show. He is one of my favorite people to have on. And our conversation today is on the call for connection, a topic I believe to be one of the most important we've covered thus far on the show. As you'll hear in the conversation, Stephen has lots of wisdom to share. So without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Stephen Cope. I am uh, grateful to connect. As I was saying before hit record here, you know, it means more than you know. I greatly appreciate your time and to discuss what I think is just such an important topic. And it may be something that started this whole in search of, of wisdom thing initially. And I, I haven't necessarily done an episode dedicated to connection, but I've wanted to, and, and you've written the book, Deep Human Connection, which we're going to talk about and things like loneliness and love but maybe to kick it off, would you mind sharing a little bit about what led you to write Deep Human Connection initially? Yeah, I'd be glad to, Joshua. So I am um, 73 years old, and I've had many friendships in my life. But when I was 59, I moved here to Albany, where I live now. And um, I first one of the first things I did when I got here was join a men's group. And the very first night of the men's group, I met a guy who would become, I don't know, I, I want to say the best friend I've ever had in my life. Mm. Um, we are complete opposites. He was there in men's group. He had a big cast on his leg because he'd had a motorcycle accident. He's a car- carpenter and a contractor, really a blue-collar guy. Um, I couldn't be more opposite as a kind of intellectual guy up up in my head, maybe at times. But there was something that connected. There was that magic moment. I heard him share in men's group. He he cried. Here's this big, strong, really handsome man crying about his divorce. And I don't know, there was, we don't understand exactly what it, what is that? that connects with another human being. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, I feel like you have to run the ball all the way to the fence. You have to explore those connections as deeply as you can. And I didn't really expect it to happen at, at, at my age, but of course it can happen at any age. And so I, I wanted to dive deeply into 
the question of friendship. What is it? Why is it so powerful? This friendship turned my life in all these new directions that I never would have gone in. Mm. He was interested in me. You know, I, I wrote a chapter on best friends in, in the book that you're referring to, and it's called Twinship. And that doesn't mean actual twins, but it means when you connect with that person um, with whom you're fascinated. And the lovely thing about it is they're fascinated with you, too. We can't explain it, but we must explore it. So that happened with Brian and me. And to this day, 14 years later, we're best, best friends. We talk maybe twice a day. Mm. Um, he's straight. I'm gay. It's not a romance. I'm pretty much like the godfather to his son, Keen. Um, so I wrote the book, Joshua, because I got fascinated in what it is in us that cries out for these deep connections and, um, and what happens when we follow them and let them transform us. Mm. Um, so it took me into the realms of psychology and neurobiology and spirituality. And it was one of those books, Joshua, that it just poured out of me. I mean, I, I still can't believe it. Um, it just poured out of me. So there it is. It's, it's partly, it's quite autobiographical too. So uh, I, I deal with, the, the paperback edition that you've read, actually, I excised a chapter there. So the original um, was called Soul Friends and had six different characters. The one that you've read has, has five because that one of those for me was a little bit too psychoanalytic for the mainstream mm. crew. So I took that one out to make it a little more mainstreamable. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful book. And... In our previous conversations, you know, and you've written a lot about dharma or sacred duty, do we have a, a universal call, you think, to, to realize our connectedness, you know, with, uh, with individuals in the way of this deep friendship and the larger whole? Like, how do you make sense or think about that? You know... Joshua, the, the contemplative traditions, both yoga and Buddhism have been brilliant at this. They realize there's something in the Buddhist tradition called the three marks of existence, impermanence, no self, and suffering. No self is usually translated no self, but actually what it really means is the self is profoundly interdependent. The self is actually co-created out of deep relationship from the very beginning of our babyhood until we die. And the continuing growth of the self relies on these deep connections that we have at hopefully at every stage of our life. Um, we have a built-in radar for, so at, at every stage of our life, we have different developmental needs, right? And we have a built-in radar for that person who will provide the exact needs, hand in glove, that we psychologically need at that point in our development. So for whatever reason, uh, you know, the Buddhists say um, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. When the person is ready, the friend appears. 
And mm. that friend can be a romantic partner or can be a, um, a platonic friend or can be whatever, can be completely surprising. But we have radar for that. And when when we see it, we know it, we smell it, we don't even understand why, but we're drawn toward it. And, and the reason why is because it's going to create the next iteration of us, just like my deep friendship with Brian has created an iteration of me that I never would have expected. Hmm. But what I had that I credit to my long meditation practice is I trusted it in spite of my mind perhaps saying, well, you don't have anything in common with Brian. I trusted it and I went with it and wow. Um, so yeah, we do have, there's a deep inner knowing and in a, in a call for that relationship. I, I wrote about, um, with, with most of the chapters I wrote about both my own life and my own friend at each of those stages and I wrote about a great life, and, and I wrote about Eleanor Roosevelt, who found her, when she went to school in England at 16, she found the woman, the motherly woman, the container, the woman who was going to hold, safely hold and soothe her in the headmistress of the school. It was exactly what she needed. And like fire and gasoline, they went together, and they were together for two years while Eleanor was in school, and it completely, I don't want to say completely, it profoundly healed the the lack of mothering that she'd had prior to that. Mm -hmm. But they both recognized this ineffable connection, and they went for it. It's a, it's a beautiful story. Yeah. How do you make sense of what's been called, you know, in, in modern times, this epidemic of, of loneliness? I was looking at at some of the the stats of this is pre-pandemic but basically the reported numbers on loneliness of you know um I I want to say in the 70s it was 11% and then just before the the pandemic you know up around 60% or so so mm -hmm. really a drastic increase in you know, this reported feeling of, of loneliness. Yeah. You know, in order to have a real connection, the kind that's healing and that promotes development, one has to be authentic. Like you have to be your true self. You have to mm -hmm. reveal who you are in the moment. That deep connection, that friendship is going to strip away any layers of pretense and you're going to be seen and known for who you are. And because we have this crazy world of social media where people curate their own image in the world through their Facebook accounts or whatever, and um, they, they curate the, the idea of who they think they are and who this does not promote the kind of authenticity and self-acceptance and vulnerability and transparency that's actually needed to make that deep connection, mm. right? So when, when I was attracted to, to Brian, there he was crying. His heart was ripped open, and my heart was ripped open at the same time. 
And it was that authenticity of this is who I really am, this is what I need, that instantly drew me to him. It's it's what drew Eleanor and Eleanor Roosevelt and Marie Silvestre together. It was they they saw they allowed each other to see who they were with all their vulnerabilities and that opened the door for a real connection. And I just think that we we don't live in a world, especially in America, that prizes that kind of authenticity and that, that makes room for it, right? Because in, in being your authentic self, you have to come forward with your shadow and all, the whole thing. So in my friendship with Brian, for example, we have a pact. We we always tell one another the truth, even if it's hard. Mm-hmm. There's no secrets. There's nothing hidden. Um, and that allows for, and there there are moments when that's really hard, but that allows for this deep connection to develop. And so yeah, I think it's, it's the lack of authenticity and willingness to be transparent and the, um, the, the predominance of image and celebrity and, um, and so forth that really, I think, uh, inhibits that in our current culture. There's a, a fairly recent book by um, Vivek Murthy. I believe he's still the current Surgeon General, um, but if not, the the previous. And he wrote this book together. He said he was basically going around and talking to people, and he, he said community after community, he would meet these people that felt homeless, you know, just so lonely, even though they had a, a roof over their head. For someone that is maybe in that place, you know, feeling home, homeless, feeling separate. Where do you, where do you go from there? You know, is there any, I know there's no sort of universal advice and it may be different for each person, but is there something if you're, if your friend Brian was, was feeling that way, you know, what might you, you recommend as a, as a small step towards, being at, at home in the in the world. Well, what you describe it's so profound. I, I call it the orphan archetype. The orphan archetype, the sense that I I don't belong. And they're above everything else in the world, human beings must belong. We must belong to something bigger than ourselves, greater than ourselves. We must belong to family, to community. And, of course, there's less and less of that, right? So when I met Brian, we were in community. We were in this men's group that I'm still in. It's been going on for, like, 25 years. It's a community of, I don't even want to say like-minded people. It's a community of open-hearted people. Mm. And so what I would recommend to that, that person who's experiencing orphanhood in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, is to create around themselves uh, a surround of relationship, a surround of relationships that's going to hold them. You know, I, 
I, a lot of my work in this book on connection is based on the work of Heinz Kohut, who was a great student of Freud. And he broke away from Freud because he said the, the most important thing for us is not sex and aggression, which is where Freud was going, but human connection. And um, in order to fully develop as human beings, he said, we must create around ourselves a surround of relationship that is sustaining, affirming, and evoking. Sustaining, affirming, evoking that will hold you, but also call you forth. One of, one of the greatest examples of how this can transform that lonely person for me is the old movie Fame. I don't know if you're, you're not old enough to probably have seen it, but it portrays a young woman who has grown up in a family where she feels utterly alone and unseen and unmirrored. And she enters into, she gets a scholarship to the, one of the schools of the performing arts in New York City, and she enters into this lively community where for the first time she's actually seen for who, he, who she is, not just for her magnificence, but also for her deficits, her, her, her challenges. She's seen, and a result of that is that she's loved. She feels seen and loved at the same time. And when we don't feel seen, we begin to strangely disappear. I mean, that's what Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot, is all about that. Remember, um, the two characters on stage keep waiting for Godot to arrive, and every day Godot sends his messenger, and every day the messenger forgets that he's seen Estragon and Vladimir the day before. And they arrive, he, the, the messenger arrives, and Estragon and Vladimir said, please, tell us you saw us. Tell us you've seen us. Tell us you saw us yesterday. He doesn't remember. Hmm. And they begin to disappear. So when we're not seen, sustained, evoked by this surround of relationship, we literally begin to disappear. Hmm. That seeing calls us into being. And my, my first book, Yoga and the Quest for the True Self, was about my own entering into that kind of community in the community of Kripalu. And it was, and I was 40 years old. It was 33 years ago. It was the first time I felt really fully seen and accepted. And it allowed me to have what I would call the, the reparative family experience, where I was now in a healthy family where I was seen, reflected back, evoked, called forward for all my strengths. So, you know, everybody's longing for community these days, Joshua. Everybody is. And, of course, COVID has only exacerbated that. So I, I just taught a, one of my first in-person courses that I've taught since COVID. Mm. And the level of hunger for connection in that group of 50 people from all over the world was just amazing. There was so much hunger for just being together mm. in a group of human beings. It's deeply hardwired into our into ourselves. It's so fascinating the idea of being seen. You know, I'm curious how it connects with being understood. In the in the chapter I found really interesting in the book, 
it titled The Self Behind the Self. Mm. And I think I read something recently, I believe it was Emerson of just this idea of embracing to a certain extent being misunderstood. Mm. And would you agree? Like, is there parts of us that no one will quite truly understand? Like maybe you and your friendship with Brian, there's is mm. maybe as close as you can get. But to a certain extent, as we've talked about of interconnectedness, but also we're also very unique at the at the same time. And so mm. therefore there's maybe no one that can truly understand us. And please disagree if you think. Any thoughts on, on being understood? Um Yes, absolutely. I'm just making a note here of something I thought of. Um, it is absolutely true in my experience that there's never going to be another human being who entirely understands us, mm-hmm. which is precisely why um, Kohut talks about a surround of relationship, a rich surround, many relationships, because mm. Like I have certain friends, like Brian does not see the the spiritual side of me, the meditation he doesn't get, the yoga, all that. But I have another friend, Diane. She's my she's my meditation partner. Oh my God. We see a certain sliver of one another mm. so clearly, and I need that. Like I, I saw her last night and I haven't seen her for weeks, and we were like thirsty little puppies we were so hungry to share with one another our what our spiritual journey's been like for the last three weeks. So I think there is always going to be, and Freud I think talks about this as 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 feeling incognito, cut off, unknown, unseen. Mm. There will always be a part that feels that way. Um and yet there are parts of ourselves that we we will never see without the reflection of ourselves back in someone's eyes. So I, I always use the physical analogy of you'll never see the, the small of your back with your own eyes, only through reflection with a mirror, only through the eyes of another human being. Will you be able to see parts of your psyche? So just as there is this incognito part and and the poets talk about that you know robert frost talks about it emily dickinson talks about it and that's why we read poetry because we feel seen oh other people feel this way Mm -hmm. um it's it's both the majesty and the the pain of living as a human being is that Mm -hmm. we're never fully fully seen and recognized but we long to be so much and a lot of us can be if we know how to skillfully create that surround of relationship. And it doesn't have to be huge. Like I, Brian, I have Brian, Diane, my twin sister, Sandy, and our deep friend. She sees me in a way hmm. nobody else does. My niece, um, Susie, my friend whom I live with. So 
I don't know. I guess the answer is yes and no, Joshua. Hmm. Yeah. Something that I'm just really curious about is, and we've we've kind of been talking about it throughout the conversation, but you know, wisdom traditions all seem to point to this truth of interconnectedness, interrelatedness, and yet we can experience ourselves as as separate or or cut off. And then maybe like a part two, which is probably so counterintuitive to someone that doesn't have a contemplative practice, but a mm-hmm. contemplative practice can help one to see their interconnectedness and interrelatedness. It It seems probably for someone that doesn't have that experience to be very counterintuitive. How do you make sense of all of that? Oh, my God. There is such an interesting paradox there, Joshua. So I'm a longtime meditator, and that means I periodically go on a big retreat for anywhere from three days to a month. And those retreats are always in silence, right? So you're sitting on a cushion in silence next to person A on your right and person B on your left and person C here. And I swear to God, by the end of that month, you feel more deeply connected, like you know this person in a way that's profound and you've never even talked to them. You've sat next to them for a month, breathing in and out, breathing in and out. And there is this profound sense of intimacy, of knowing. And I think that's because we're engaged, two things. First of all, in in the meditation, we're engaged in a process of knowing ourselves. You know, part of the, the Buddhist call meditation, one of the traditions calls meditation familiarization, familiarization with myself, with how I am, with the vast, beautiful world inside. And in the silence and in the being together in silence and quiet, somehow my vast inner world just raises the person on my right and the person on my left. And there's this profound connection. That's A. B is meditation is thought to be I'm alone, right? But actually, and I write about this in the book, the way we learn to be alone, to tolerate being alone in the first instance, is by being alone in the presence of a, of a trusted other. So I write about the, an experience I had when I was three, and I was on the beach playing with my little pail and the, and the shovel. And my mom was right over here, my beautiful mother in her pink bathing suit and looking gorgeous and not particularly paying attention to me, but I knew she was there. She was right there. So I felt safe. I felt contented. And I felt absolutely at ease because she was there to drift and play in my own world right there. And slowly that mom gets interjected, gets incorporated. And when I'm sitting at IMS or wherever, she's there. She's inside. I've interjected her presence. So the only way I can be 
present to myself is because I learned to be present in the presence of the trusted other. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. I'm curious to ask, maybe this is not the greatest question in the world. What does that look like in the mundane, you know, is it possible to tap into that in the mundane trip to the grocery store? It, It seems possible to me that even walking around the grocery store, if you can remember to maybe realize that you're connected in a way with everyone there, that there is some sort of in maybe a much smaller way to realize that, you know, at, at any moment, do you think that's in, in how, you know, if so, how does one move a step closer to that? Dude, it happens all the time. We have little moments of knowing the true nature of our interconnection. I was on the, on the subway in Boston and the green line is notorious for getting stuck in the tunnel. So the, the green line got stuck and I was stuck in this car full of people I didn't know for about two hours. And I began to look around and, and I saw the, there's the man with the briefcase who's clearly missed a meeting and he's so upset and anxious. And there's the woman who's just happily reading her book. It's all fine. And all these different characters. And after a while, I began to think, this is my world now. But this is, I'm really connected with these people. We're all in this world together. And the very, the very peak of yoga enlightenment is the discovery that, and it says this exactly in the scriptures, it says, all sentient beings are made of the same stuff. All sentient feeling beings are made of the same stuff. When you have those moments of awakening, you know indisputably, I am made of the same stuff as that person next to me on the cushion or that person in the grocery store. We, we suffer in the same ways. Um, we suffer in the yoga tradition from greed, hatred, and aversion. Um, we feel happiness in the same ways. So um, there are these moments of knowing. You know, I, I had an experience. I'm, I'm up in the Berkshires and in the woods, and it's quiet, and I calm down, and it's a beautiful sunset. And I'm going for a walk in the woods, and all of a sudden there's a deer in front of me. And the deer looks up looks straight into my eyes. And I have this moment of knowing, hello, friend, right? Goodwill effortlessly rises up. And the goodwill rises up because I know we're made of the same stuff. Those little moments remind us who we are. And we come back to them over and over again in in memory. Uh, Because then we go on about our business, the the subway train finally moved and I got out, but I'd been changed and I knew it because the violin guy in the subway, I gave him $10 
I don't usually do that. But the sense of all human beings are equal members of one human family mm. is something we know, and it arises from time to time. You know, in the winter, I go to Key West for part of the winter, and they have big signs everywhere, and it actually says that. All human beings are equal members of one human family. Mm. And they you can get wristbands that say it, and it reminds you. And Key West is a crazy place. There's a lot of dark and a lot of light, but it is the most open-hearted place I know in our country. Uh, highly philanthropic, open-hearted, and yeah. you see the bulletin boards and you realize they've claimed it. They've claimed what the yoga sages have been saying forever, all human beings are equal members of one human family. Mm. So that's a very high consciousness to achieve, but we all have it inside. That's why you even asked the question, because you, yeah. you've had that experience in the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask a difficult question about love, not that all of these questions are, are probably in the category of difficult, maybe. But I read a number uh, of years ago. There's a book by Anthony DeMello titled Awareness. Really love the book. And there's something that he says of basically when it comes to love, what I get from it is he's suggesting that you need to love everyone uses the analogy of, um, you know, like a rose does not withhold its fragrance from good and bad people. Mm. A, a tree does not, you know, withhold its shade to good and bad people, even to the one that is chopping it down. And I, I recently, in the last uh, couple months, read something in Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, mm. and he's points to a similar thing. He says like a branch cut off from its neighboring branch is cut from the whole tree. And he says, and this is his own journal writing to himself, a human being severed from just one other human being has dropped from the whole community. And essentially we, we do this through hatred and rejection. You know, should we think about love in this way of, all or nothing, and maybe that's not the best terminology, but, you know, what do you make of that? Well, the contemplative traditions make a, a really good distinction between something that we call love, which is really attachment, mm -hmm. clinging, holding on, uh, I'm going to make a deal with you that you're going to give me X and I'm going to give you Y. Mm -hmm. That's not what the contemplative traditions call love. They call love something, the word Maitri and, and Metta literally translates as goodwill. Mm. Goodwill. It's what arises when you know another human being to be your family member. Goodwill naturally arises. So with that dear, Mr. Dear, may you be happy. I, I, I wish you well. I hope you have a great life, you know. I, I right now have a new puppy, and I look into her eyes, and I I feel the connection between us. I know her on some level. Mm. 
And what arises out of my heart is a flood of goodwill. Oh, may you be happy, little precious being. Mm -hmm. And this goodwill is said by the Buddha to be our true nature. Mm -hmm. So the Buddha said, our true nature is not grasping aversion and delusion, the so-called three afflictions. Our true nature is this goodwill. Because the truth of who we are is interconnected beings. So goodwill falls equally on the just and the unjust. It's just like Shakespeare said of mercy. Um, he said that the quality of mercy is twice blessed. It falls like the gentle rain from heaven mm -hmm. upon the just and the unjust alike. The merchant of Venice. Mm. Oh, it's so beautiful. I can hardly stand it. Yeah. Um, He's talking about the quality of mercy, but that extends to, to the quality of goodwill, loving kindness. So I love this view of the contemplative traditions. It, it takes us out of the quagmire of what love has become in, in the West. It's, it's perverted it into something else. Um, actual goodwill, metta, maitri, loving kindness, like the gentle rain from heaven, it falls on the just and the unjust. And by the way, I will tell you this as a therapist. Um, as a therapist, a psychotherapist, which is how I spent my early part of my career, your job is to do what? Is to pay attention to another human being in the chair across from you. Very often I feel disturbed, upset, aversive to who this person is, to their behavior. But any person who sticks around long enough in my office and comes back again and again and sits in that chair, I get to know them. And I get to know that we're both made of the same stuff. Mm. And love arises. They never tell you this in graduate school. With your long-term patience, you love them. What is that love? It's goodwill. Mm. It's goodwill. I, I wish that I, I want you to be happy. I'll do whatever I can. I can't take on your suffering, but I will do what I can to help you to happiness. And um, so, yes, let it fall on the just and the unjust alike. Gandhi was so brilliant at this. He, he got what the Buddha said, which is that love is stronger than hate. Hate cannot overcome love, whereas love can overcome hate. Mm. So like the Course of Miracles says love is what's really real. Go toward love. Mm. And by love, they mean goodwill. Goodwill, friendliness to all beings. Gandhi got the power of that. And lo and behold, didn't he end the subservience of the whole Indian population to the British Raj mm -hmm. as a result of love, not hate? Drove the British crazy. They couldn't figure him out. <laughs> Such an important point. It 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 seems this. Um, I'm a a bit of a reality TV fan. There's this show, Married at First Sight which I'm going to bring mm -hmm. on the podcast here. I watched it last night. Oh, cool. And yeah. uh, 
it's for anybody not familiar, you know, it's these strangers that agree to be basically matched with someone by these experts, you know, mm-hmm. to be married and they go through this process. I, I find it to be a beautiful, beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, as you mentioned, this, this good will, like even Thomas Aquinas, he, you know, defines love as to will the good of another. And, in the show, there's so many, it's so difficult, you know, these bright people that are beautiful people coming together. And it's really challenging because so many of us, it seems like have this, I say, desire to be loved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, St. Francis talks about it in his prayer. It's like not to be love but to love not to be pardoned but to pardon and i don't know should we think about it like that are we called to love the world not necessarily to be loved should that not be something that we should even be focused on joshua it's a very high aspiration but why not aspire to that it's the highest aspiration. I love the moment that John Lewis writes about in his autobiography, where he's being beaten by the cops on Edmund Pettus Bridge. Yeah. And he has a moment of epiphany where he realizes, he says to himself, these men who are beating me are caught in the same web of human bondage that I'm caught in. And, of course, the contemplative traditions describe that as hatred, Greed, hatred, and delusion. They all came to the same conclusion. That's the web that we're all caught in. Both you and I have my moments of greed, of hatred, of delusion. But for him, seeing we're all made of the same stuff, our suffering is alike. Um, the the Buddhists say there, there are three um, proximate causes of the arising of goodwill. The first one is seeing the good. So in that client, over time, inevitably, I see the good. There's good there. That's the first proximate cause. The second is identify with the suffering. Realize, like John Lewis said, we're all caught in the same web of of humanity, greed, hatred, and delusion. And the third one is recognize that all sentient beings want to be happy. And to the extent that our behavior is not producing that, it's because we're ignorant of how it really is, of how this whole thing really works. And how it really works is love is the way to go. Hmm. So I try my hardest to create a lifestyle in which um, goodwill arises, right? Hmm. Like, to create the proximate conditions, look for the good, identify with the suffering, know that that person out there, that political character that we hate, whoever it is, you know what? They're acting that way because they're deluded. They don't know. Mm. And so you pray for them. You pray. And Sharon Salzberg is great about this. She says, pray that they might be happy, but also that they might find the means to be happy. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I'm so 
blessed in this lifetime to have found the means to be happy. Um, and those poor characters, they've not. So they're suffering in a hell realm. Mm. I've had my toes in a hell realm before. I know what that's like. Caught in the same web of bondage. So then when you get that, as with John Lewis, compassion arises. Mm. Compassion arises naturally when the open heart comes close to suffering. Mm. And when the heart is open, even on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, comes close to the suffering of these nasty-acting people, it opens. Mm. Compassion arises. May you be happy. I've... I've heard it said recently that, you know, compassion is, is maybe the, the answer to every question, you know, every mm. response. Mm. It's interesting, as you're just talking about that, it seems like we miss that, even though, you know, you have Socrates and Plato essentially saying the same thing, no one does evil knowingly, you have Jesus on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. Why do you think we don't, why is that hard to, I want to say, it it's almost seems to be like a, like a worldview, like a view and belief of, of human nature that, I think Maya Angelou said, you know, when people know better, they do better. I mean, look, there are cultures in which what we're talking about is actively practiced. Hmm. Tibet, before the Chinese invaded, were actively practicing a culture of goodwill. Hmm. And, and several things arise. Goodwill, friendliness to all beings, compassion, generosity, and something called sympathetic joy, which is I find joy in the happiness of another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know now about the brain that the brain has actually what's called a negativity bias. Um, we this comes from the limbic system, the 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 neo the neo mammalian brain, which evolved on the on the um, deserts of the savannas of Africa where we were both predator and prey. So this part of the brain is constantly scanning for two things, threat and opportunity. And it's true of the human being. We live with a a primitive brain that's constantly scanning for threat and opportunity. Mm. Now, the more advanced part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, was developed when human beings got into social settings and became part of complex social situations where they learned that that was actually against their best interests and their best interests, their own best interest was actually in being generous and compassionate and loving. That's, that's how to make a a social fabric actually works really well. (laughs) Um, And so the, you know, we all struggle with this, competition between the primitive brain that's constantly scanning for threat and opportunity. You talk about reality shows. Well, I don't make a habit of it, but if you ever watch the real housewives of X, Y, and Z, you can see the negativity bias at work. One will say 
something which could be considered a compliment to another. And this one sees it as a threat for some reason. Mm-hmm. Why negativity bias? The, the brain is wired to see threat even where it isn't. To see that rope on the ground as a snake, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's a survival tactic. You can see that at work in these reality shows where they actually set people up to get triggered by all of that, their, their greed, hatred, and, and delusion. It's right there. We're so on the edge of it. I, I work out at the local gym and I walk in the track up above the basketball court. Regularly, I see scenes where something happens, somebody's threatened, somebody pushes somebody, and now you have a fight. You have animals, right, going at it. So, I mean, we know scientifically how hate and anger and resentment and all of that brew and bubble, the contemplative traditions were just as interested in how do you brew and bubble love and compassion? Mm. And so when the Dalai Lama had a big, his annual mind and life conference, and they talked about the negative emotions, fear, hatred, anger, resentment, blah, blah, blah. He said at the, at the end, he said, okay, now let's talk about the positive. Let's talk about love, compassion, joy, the Western psychologists had no language for it, no studies, didn't have any interesting distinctions about it, whereas the Tibetan monks had days and days of distinctions about how do you systematically create loving kindness, goodwill, compassion. Mm. So that was the beginning of something called positive psychology here in, in America, which has made strides in beginning to understand well, how do we cultivate this part of the brain that really is wired, the prefrontal cortex, for acts of generosity and altruism? It's all in there. Hmm. I've recently been doing a bit of reading of uh, Immanuel Kant, something I find some really difficult philosophy, Hmm. but for a, a podcast I did a few days ago. And there's something he writes... I think it's kind of important of, he says, we can't know for sure that we have free will, but essentially we have to act as if we do. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, if someone's listening, you know, anyone out there that is feeling separate, feeling cut off, homeless, this idea of, connection like the buddha talks about you know don't take my word for it you know experience it for yourself which is maybe easier said than done but should we at least as a starting point maybe choose to take these wisdom traditions word for it as a as a starting point choose i maybe i can't or maybe it's challenging to know for sure that i am deeply connected with the whole, but it's best for my life is if I choose, I act as this interconnected, interrelated being with the whole. So the contemplative traditions basically say, um, uh, 
every action has an effect <clears throat> on the field around you. That action can either plant the seeds of suffering for you and for others, or it can plant the seeds of happiness. We do have goodwill. It resides in every moment when we make a choice about how to act. The word karma means action. Mm. Um, karma is widely misunderstood, but the notion of karma is basically every action of body, speech, and mind on my part and mind create drops a seed into the field. That seed can either proliferate into suffering for you or someone else or into happiness. The Buddha said we inherit our karma, we own our karma, we are our karma. That we we create and co-create ourselves in this world, in this field that we're part of. So even if you're skeptical about it, why not try it? Notice that when you plant seeds of goodwill, they sprout into this kind of tree. And when you plant seeds of ill will, that's what happens. Which do you want? It's just as simple as that. I mean, I grew up in the Christian church that, that made it into morality. And it's much easier to swallow as it's just a better strategy of a way to live. What am I going to plant? I'm going to plant this. What am I going to feed? I'm not going to feed the wolf. I'm going to feed the puppy dog. Um, and it doesn't have to be made into right and wrong. It just has to be made into, if you're living the examined life, you'll begin to notice, wow, mm. I plant seeds of goodwill. <laughs> Good stuff happens. Well, I am so grateful for your time, Stephen. Let me ask you a final wrap-up question. As you know, we ask guests, what is wisdom? And you, you've answered that, and listeners can go back to a previous conversation to get that. But maybe as a way to wrap up the conversation, how do you see the connection between wisdom and, and love or, or whatever word you might want to throw in there? Yeah, I mean, again, going back to the contemplative traditions, there is a view there that wisdom, which is the, the word in, in yoga is vidya, which means is sometimes translated knowledge, but it really means knowing, mm -hmm. knowing how things are, knowing Joshua, right? It doesn't mean do you know your state capitals. Mm -hmm. It means knowing the world. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is highly practical. It means this direct knowing function. The, the view is that the very essence of the human being is the capacity to know, mm -hmm. to know the world, right? I know you, Joshua. That when knowing arises, goodwill also arises. So knowing and loving are deeply interconnected. And that's something that I think people find hard to make sense of, but I definitely believe it. As you, as you know the world, for all its, for everything, you love the world. Well, that is a beautiful way to, to wrap it up. 
If I could ask, would you mind sharing with the listeners, you know, how they could maybe connect and, you know, with some of your work in the world? Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a website, www.stephencope.com. That will list all of my books and all of the programs I have coming up. You can look for me at Kripalu, where I'm the scholar in residence, which is uh, www.kripalu.org. Just Google me. You'll find my books there. They're all on, on Amazon. And um, and please come and see me at Kripalu. Or now I'm teaching online, Joshua, which is so cool. I just, I just taught a month-long course on Dharma online. And I had people from all over the world. I had 100 people from all around the world, and it was so cool. So I'll be doing that twice next year, and you can see on my website when those will be. But they're great. Like, it's fun for me. It's really inexpensive. You can show up and get exactly what I give at a $3,000 seminar, right, at Kripalu. You can get it for $200 uh, online. So it's allowed a lot more people to study Dharma, and that makes me happy. (laughs) I I love it. Well, I'm looking forward to signing up for that for the next one that comes around. And uh, we'll link everything in the show notes for the listeners. So, yeah, please check it out. And I'm just, again, grateful for your time. Stephen Cope, thank you so much for coming back on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you, Joshua. Always a pleasure to be with you, man. I love your energy. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice.